Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today in this podcast, we're going to discuss the Christian witness in public schools. Today we'll lead off with Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. As usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those into our overview. So, with the Christian witness in public schools under the influence of the Holy Scriptures, let's just dig right in. Right. Our current event of the day involves the relationships between church and state. Uh, This is the problem of the word and witness in public schools uh, in terms of the current culture. As illustrated by the latest SCOTUS, that's the Supreme Court of the United States, decision about the praying coach on the football field in the state of Washington. What is the Christian expectation in this matter of church and state, especially as we're specifically looking at public schools, to live out the fundamental truth of Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, especially verse 21? And Randy's going to read it. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Yes, this is the classic text on church and state, at least the classic text of where to begin. And there's a lot throughout the Bible on this, but we're confining ourselves just to the matter of the witness in the public schools. It is clear, Caesar is owed something, give that to him, that is to say government. And God, of course, is owed something, we need to give that to him. Hmm. There is discussion about the image thing, there's an image of the emperor on the coin. We are made in the image of God, so we owe ourselves in that sense, being God's image to God and not to the state, depending on what claim the state is going to make upon us. These are not two separate spheres, for the love of God and his ways are always first. Jesus does not teach here what to do when they conflict, but that God comes first is, of course, a Christian expectation and is very obvious. Listen to this from Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbors as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Loving God and loving neighbor, says the man in question, is more than all the ceremonial, sacrificial uh, givings and all the things that go with that from the Old Testament. Clearly, loving God and loving neighbor stands in a class by itself. But, of course, they do conflict at times with a governing authority. Well, we have the early apostles as great examples of how that has to be addressed when Caesar claims what is God's. Acts 5, 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Yes, keep in mind that that council there, the Sanhedrin, is operating under the auspices of the Roman government, so they are an arm of state government. We must obey God rather than men. Here's a good quote from um, commentator Michael J. Wilkins. We must serve Caesar in a way that is honoring to God. End of quote. However, this often involves the seeking of his will as how to do it. In other words, wisdom is involved. And we'll see the need of seeking God's will with witness in public places where the government has the claim and the wisdom and how that works out. Jesus' teaching here from Matthew 22 begins the process of separating government laws from God laws. So, how do we Christians maintain our witness in schools which are becoming more and more hostile to a direct witness of the word in the classroom. When schools are more and more becoming government propaganda schools, how do we do this? Keep in mind, Israel, the Old Testament, was a theocracy. Church and state, so to speak, were combined. They were one. Uh, the moral issues, such as the Ten Commandments, were inseparable from the non-moral ones. And this often causes people problems in the Old Testament. Both were expected to be obeyed. One example makes this point. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Here is Randy's reading of Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Right. Now, if this keeping the Sabbath holy and remembering it so, if it's not obeyed, what would be the punishment? Here's an example from Numbers 15, 32 through 36. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness... They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, and those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses." This is uh, not murder, it's not theft, it's not anything else from the uh, Ten Commandments. Just a fella gathering sticks. Mm. But this 
command, which theologians call positive command, part of the ceremonial religious commands of the Old Testament, is to be obeyed with the same kind of obedience as the rest of the what we call moral commandments. He's just gathering sticks, but he wasn't to do it, so he got stoned to death. In the New Testament, it is clear that the church is not a theocracy and has no government to so punish people. For example, listen to this from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2 and 13. It is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Right, remove him from the church, and God judges those on the outside, but on the inside of the church, the church must take care of its own business, he is to be removed. And the expression used there, as Randy read it, is purge the evil one from among you. Now, that's from the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament context, it meant death. Mm. So here's Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, and then Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. And Deuteronomy 22:22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Right. So in the Old Testament, the phrase purge the evil from Israel meant capital punishment by stoning. Uh, but in the New Testament, Paul uses the phrase, he simply is referring to excommunication in view of restoration. Now we see that mm. back in that text from chapter 5. Rain is going to read 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 now. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Exactly. The church only excludes. God decides the punishment. And there's a debate on that verse that Randy just read. Some say it refers to he loses his life but saves the spirit. And we see something like that in 1 Corinthians 11. Others say, no, it's just severe discipline to kill the desires of the flesh, perverted mm -hmm. though they be, so that his spirit will be free to uh, do the will of God. However it is, whatever the punishment, whatever the discipline is, God decides it, not the church. The church simply excludes from the congregation for the purpose of restoration. You know, something that the, the purpose of church discipline is always restoration. It's not just to excommunicate for the purpose of excommunication. Exactly, exactly. Uh, obviously, if you're stoned to death, that you yeah, can't there's get not much rest, restoration is going to doesn't take doesn't place. happen. That's right. Yeah. So, with this in view, we do that background for Old Testament, New Testament, just to give you a little bit of understanding here of the First Amendment. I'm going to read a couple of three quotes here. They're they're a little long, longer than usual, but it's uh, important to understand this. First of all, in our Constitution, there's the First Amendment. Now, the first clause of the First Amendment prohibits any religious theocracy while encouraging freedom of religion. 
It says this, here is the quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Mm. Now, let me just quickly say that this refers to the federal government. The states continued to have state theocracies clear up until the 1830s and 40s. Like in the state of Virginia, the Church of England, you had to pay tax to that church, and whether it was Baptist, atheist, or whatever. This mm. is saying the federal government cannot do it. Eventually, though, all the states got on board, and so every state had this in their state constitution in some form. Now, how do we understand this clause? Make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Here's a fellow, Steve Waldman, and this is from Bounding Faith, Providence, Politics, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America. Now, listen to this quote. Quote, the founding faith then was not Christianity, and it was not secularism. It was religious liberty, a revolutionary formula for promoting faith by leaving it alone. In the light of the unbroken record of invoking God's name in foundational documents throughout the world, throughout the colonies, as I mentioned, and throughout history, the stubborn refusal of the U.S. Constitution to invoke the Almighty is abnormal, historic, radical, and not accidental. But liberals miss a basic point. The framers of the Constitution were not contemplating the role of government religion. They were debating the role of national government and mm. religion. How does this work out in history? Listen to Francis Schaeffer, a guy I studied way back in the 70s, philosopher, theologian. Always, his books are always good and helpful. Here he is on the history of what happens when church-state becomes one. Uh, a truth, as we will see, is well known to the founding fathers who uh, constructed that amendment. Francis Schaeffer says, quote, There is no New Testament basis for linking of church and state until Christ the King returns. The whole Constantine mentality from the 4th century up to our day was a mistake. Constantine, as a Roman emperor in 313 AD, ended the persecution of Christians. Unfortunately, the support he gave to the church led by 381 to the enforcing of Christianity by Theodosius I as the official state religion. Mm. Making Christianity the official state religion opened the way for confusion up to our own day. And of course, as I grew up, became a Christian through the uh, 20th century and 21st, I kept hearing that Christians wanted a theocracy. I'm not aware of any serious people that I ever worked with that ever wanted a theocracy because we believed that the amendment was right because of what Jesus says in Matthew 22. So uh, throughout the centuries, there's been much blood shed over this problem by both saints and sinners. We won't go into the history of that. Note a founding father's take on such history. This is from James Madison, man considered somewhat of a political genius. Quote, the purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe with blood for centuries. Hmm. So what is the relationship between church and state to be? What is the Christian expectation? Here's a, I think, a good quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, never its tool. In other words, we bear witness to the state. And up until recently, because of our good constitution, we had the freedom to do that. What to do when they conflict? Now, the answer today so often, and I've seen this in especially the last 20, 30 years, is the courts. We just need to capture the courts and they'll... Mm. Courts are not dependable and consistently upholding the First Amendment. They'll do it once in a while, 
but then mm, not so much. So we must maintain our witness regardless of opposition. So let's take a look at prayer in public schools, both during uh, school day and, and afterwards. This is from um, a case that came out of the state of Washington with a coach who um, went down on the football field after everybody left to, to pray and uh, the school board you know, removed him and it went to the courts and made itself up to the Supreme Court. The case is Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And here's the AP saying this, quote, the Supreme Court said Monday that a high school football coach who knelt and prayed on the field after games was protected by the Constitution, a decision that opponents said would open the door to much more coercive prayer in public schools. That's uh, from June 27th of this year. Well, praise the Lord, there's still some freedom from coercive governments, which would push prayer out of the public square. Apparently, the opposition believes this will bring back coercive prayer, such as was banned in 1962 by the Supreme Court in Engel versus Vital. What is the Christian expectation? First, we can always pray to God no matter where. You know, people say you can't pray in public school. Well, as a school teacher, I did, but you know, it's so one thing, as C.S. Lewis says, you can pray when you're brushing your teeth. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. But there are other situations where the prayer would be, obviously, a problem maybe for some people. So we can always pray to God no matter what. On the other hand, the public school is not a church. I think we still have some good-meaning folk who think that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to look at it used to be in a matter of speaking almost, but that is no longer the case. So let's don't confuse the church with the public school. I witnessed the passing of scripture reading and prayer while in high school. In other words, this uh, court case that did away with reading scripture, uh, the Bible, in the public schools in 1962. Uh, I was in high school, and uh, so I came up through this in the homeroom every day. We'd have uh, the teacher stand up and read a scripture, and we'd supposed to have a prayer. Had a drink homeroom. It was disastrous. Spitballs mm -hmm. flying, people joking. Nobody paid attention. I remember one of the teachers, a poor lady, she says, people, people, now use that term loosely. I'm up here reading the Bible. We're supposed to have a, you know, nobody. I mean, it didn't work. I'm just telling you, people, that was my experience, and I don't think my experience is singular. People often say, what we need is to bring prayer back into schools. But here's the, here's the problem I've always had with that. What if the teacher in question is not a fan of prayer or the Bible or Jesus? How's that going to come across? How's it going to work? Shall we force him? And the gospel is supposed to be freedom to do it anyway. Would you want this scientist, whom we're going to quote here now, in charge of scripture reading? Quote, people cited violation of the First Amendment when New Jersey school teacher asserted that evolution and the Big Bang are not scientific and that Noah's Ark carried dinosaurs. This case is not about the need to separate church and state. It's about the need to separate ignorant, scientifically illiterate people from the ranks of teachers. And that's Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Mm. I'm sure some of the folk out there recognize him. I have seen some of his work. He is not a fan of, of uh, Christianity or supernatural religion. And, of course, as Christians, we can debate whether dinosaurs are on the ark, or as I say, they probably died in the flood. It is clear, whatever we believe about these matters, that Dr. Fan, Dr. Tyson is not a fan of Scripture. I would not want him to be coerced into a school setting to handle or read Scripture. Uh, today, putting non-Christians in public positions of handling Christians' things is not the way to go, and Jesus tells us that in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
Yes, and that's exactly what was happening when I grew up uh, in public schools. And the people who want to put prayer back in need to rethink, how's that going to work? Mm -hmm. Who's the teacher going to be doing it? I mean, what kind of teachers do we have now? And how will they interpret the Bible to students? Hmm? And neither am I wanting to coerce students to believe what I believe. For faith is about freedom. It must be freely embraced. But on the other hand, I do want to bear witness to what I believe when an opportunity presents itself, as sometimes happened in the classroom. I taught in the Cincinnati Public School System for uh, 23 years, five years before that in Christian schools, where, of course, it was not a problem. Uh, and I wanted the opportunity to defend my witness, if necessary. Um, now, this is where we are now in this country. This wasn't always the case, and I think people are thinking of the good old days and thinking we can come back to them. Mm. We have passed them. This wasn't the case in the older days when the Judaic Christians' sentiment held sway. Uh, here's the passage from the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, when it's organizing what would become the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and so forth. Uh, before they became states, they wanted them to be under some kind of government supervision, this territory. And in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, we have, quote, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government, hear that? <laughs> and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall be forever encouraged. So yes, there was Bible reading, there was prayer, there was the teaching of the Bible, mm. because that was the sentiment. It was held to by consensus. And the religion, of course, referred to Christianity. And I taught this as part of my Ohio history course back uh, in the Cincinnati public school system. 200 years ago, there was a consensus about the point of public education. That ship has sailed. The last thing I want as a Christian is someone dishonoring the Bible in such a public setting. Mm. What is needed today is a Christian witness in public schools in the classroom. Such a witness depends on our circumstances and God's will. For example, just from my own experience, I thought it was necessary to fly my flag in some reason, okay? So I always had a Bible on the desk, always. Now, the interesting thing is, no one ever asked me to, um, to get rid of it. As I, a teacher, you always had one on your as desk. As a teacher, the Bible was always there. So if you came to my classroom and saw my desk, and my desk was usually clear, there was always a Bible there. It was obvious, okay? That makes a statement. Just a closed Bible, believe me, makes a statement. When we'd have a parent-teacher night, and the parents would come by, I'd have a you know, parent look at the Bible on my desk, because that's, that's what I do during the day. And the guy asked me, he says, do you have that out during the day on your desk? I said, yes, sir. And he said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and another time, uh, there's some students, two young men were beginning to cuss with each other during homeroom in the back. And there was a young lady sitting in front of them. And she turned around. And I guess it's the first time you ever really looked at my desk. And she said, Mr. Goebel, is that a Bible on the desk? I said, yes, it is. And she turned around and <laughs> like the mother she's going to be, she tore in those two guys and said, you quit that. There's a Bible on the desk up there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, that, this is what it did for me. This is, I don't know how anybody else may do it, but this is how it's done with me. So, um, the parent is, uh, is uh, influenced by that. The kids are influenced by that. Um, here's a passage from Matthew 5, 14, 15, basically illustrating the point I'm trying to make. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. There we go. We got, we got, the light's got to shine somehow. And you need wisdom. We need wisdom on how to do that and to seek God's will. We don't want to be obnoxious. Mm. 
and we want to be able to be in a position, if we're challenged, to defend it. So it's something that has to be thought through, as I'll give you an example in a minute. Currently, many schools are in crisis mode. Not all. I think there are still some good public schools doing a good job, but so many, and day by day, there's more, are just going into a crisis mode. And a witness of light is needed. And depending on what one teaches, I did social studies, history mostly, geography, uh, there's opportunity there, but even in the math and science fields, if you're a Christian, there are ways that you can use that as a witness, depending on circumstances and what you're doing. For example, uh, one of the courses I taught on world history, they did a, a chapter on the evolution of man. They'd have a picture of uh, the Cro-Magnum and Neanderthal and the, the guy who was bent over, and then he, now he's erect, and now he's homo sapiens sapiens and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would teach that as a theory. I would tell the class, now this is a theory some people have. And the one time in class, I was going over that, and then a, a girl said, well, Mr. Global, what do you believe? And I said, I believe in Adam and Eve, the way it's written in the Bible. Absolutely. Now, I thought I would get some feedback eventually from parents or somebody never did, except for my fellow school teacher who we were talking and said, what did you do today? I said, well, this is what I did today in the history class. And he said to me, Jim, you can't do that. I said, that's what I believe. I, so, uh, you know, uh, you got to trust in the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, always be prepared to give a, 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 an answer to those who ask you for the hope that is within you. That's mm -hmm. from Peter. And that doesn't, he doesn't say, but, but not in every circumstance. Mm -hmm. No, whenever someone asks you, be prepared no matter where you're at. Yeah. I was in the public school teaching. I was asked. That's what I did. Um, here's another example. I was, again, teaching the, uh, the history of certain cultures, cultural history. And we were on the Aborigines of Australia, Aboriginals. And uh, they had a myth of creation. Their gods created their people out of the, the dirt, of the ground, and sent them forth but they soon fell into disunion and fighting and yelling and killing and murdering and all those good things. And it was because they were made with inferior material. This is the, the story. And I, when I taught that, it wasn't in the textbook. I said, but you know, if you compare that to the Genesis account, it's the same thing. You have God, one God this time, and he makes people out of the dirt of the ground. And later on they mess up, mm -hmm. but it's not because they're made out of the ground. It's because they were made in the image of God and made a wrong choice. It had to do with choices mm -hmm. and the consequences. Again, they listened, everybody was paying attention, but I never, you know, I never suffered anything from that. And Peter tells us, you know, in 1 Peter 3, that sometimes you know, do those things, do what's good, and who's going to bother you if you're doing what's good? In such times as these, we want to throw light on where the darkness is, and with God's help, we can do that. Uh, let's listen to Luke 11, 9 through 13. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And we have a great need of the Holy Spirit in our witness in public schools today. So our efforts and time should not be in reclaiming courts, because I keep hearing that. We need to reclaim the culture by way of an authentic witness, mm. not only in public square and public education, but in the arts, entertainment, medicine, education. Uh, the world is taking over all those. They used to be uh, infused with the Christian sentiment and Christian witness that's becoming less and less, because we think we're going to conquer everything through the courts. Mm. Salt and light is predicated of Christians. 
Jesus never said, now listen, your government's going to be your salt and light. No. He never said, listen, your court system's going to be your salt and light. No. We are salt and light. And one way to do this is through homeschooling, absolutely, um, because it may be God's will that we not have our kids in public school. Everybody has to decide that on its own. It's not a means of arguing, mm. as if to say, you're right and I'm wrong. Each person, family, must decide this, discerning the will of God. Others, of course, will have their children, as uh, I did, in public schools. So for school teachers who are Christian, and we will have to sort out God's will for this and be prepared to answer if challenged. I decided that if I were coerced to teach evolution as a scientific fact, I'd just be looking for another job. Uh, still, such an exit would again be an opportunity to bear witness to the word. Uh, but I must say that never happened. And of course, the witness, uh, and at times it was known that, uh, yes, I did preaching on the side. Uh, I got opportunities to talk to people and to counsel with people. Uh, when I was at one school, for the longest tour I had with one school was 10 years. Uh, me and the principal didn't always see eye to eye, but finally we got on the same page, and he was not a Christian. But we had a, um, a boy that had been in my class the uh, year before. His name was George. And over the summer, he had been beaten to death for his pocket change in a park in Cincinnati. Mm. And so uh, the principal came when school started to ask me if I would do a memorial service in the auditorium for the family. And I said, sure. So believe it or not, right there in the public school system in the auditorium, took my Bible, and the family was there, and uh, the family was a black family. Of course, I'm a white guy, but it went fine, no problems, and uh, mm. I read the Bible as is and, and did the kind of thing I do. So um, a witness matters. Now, you're going to have people who think you're stupid, and I, I got that. Yes, we, we, we get that, too. Mm -hmm. But as Peter says uh, in 1 Peter 3.17, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Evil being to violate our Christian conscience and calling by compromising his word. And that is our Christian expectation. May God help us. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about. And we're sure that there might be questions or comments about it. And we'd like to hear those questions and comments from you. So please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until our next time together, keep looking up.